Amen. Let's take our Bibles. We're going to turn to the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter 2. And I'll let you remain seated this morning as we go through the message. One of the things that I have been praying about for some time is... I want to see the Lord do a mighty work among us. And, I mean, you can look out at our, at our nation today and churches. And when I talk about churches, I'm not talking about everything that calls itself Christian. I'm not talking about all of these, uh, these religious groups out there. I'm talking about true, scriptural, Bible-believing churches that stand for truth, that proclaim the Word of God... You can look at so many of these churches today, and there is a lot of deadness out there. If you've been around, uh, there are a lot of places you can go, and uh, there, there's a, you can look at their doctrinal statement, and they're right on down the line. You can look at the missionaries that they support, and they seem like they're solid individuals, but man, you get into the church, and you realize that they're maybe just a handful of people that are there, the ones who are uh, really have very little uh, zeal or passion for the things of God. They're just kind of going through the motions. And there are a lot of dead churches out there. And then there are a lot of churches that on the outside, they, they, they look like they're actually really good churches. Maybe they're large in size and they've got a lot of programs and they've got a lot of things going on. But when you look at the fruit of them, and what's actually happening, when you pull away all of the fluff and all of the, uh, the, the thrills and the excitement and, 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 and the, the semblance of life there, there aren't really people being saved. There aren't really lives that are being changed. And it's just busyness and work and programs and all of these things. And I think in an attempt to really see the Lord move, then there's a third type of church that tends to be out there that works to try to manufacture and produce a great working, great moving of God. And what tends to happen is there is a focus on fleshliness and often worldliness and uh, emotionalism. And it's almost this idea we've got to hype things up and through our uh, through our hype, and we're, we're going to come in, and we're just going to we're going to work at you know almost almost bringing God down to us, and and none of these things equate to an authentic moving of God. I, I believe that if God is really at work, that there are going to be some evidences of that. There, there, th those evidences are going to, to manifest themselves in very real, lasting ways. For instance, in the salvation of lost souls. People coming to Christ and being born again. Uh, lives being changed. People overcoming sin. Marriages being strengthened and even restored. Broken relationships being restored. Uh, the, the word of God advancing and moving forward and, and making a difference, making an impact in the community. 
But when I say that I desire to see a moving of God, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for some man-made, manufactured misconception of the moving of the Spirit of God. I'm praying and asking God to do a work that only He can do. John chapter 6, Jesus said, It is the Spirit that quickeneth or, or brings life. The flesh profiteth nothing. No matter how hard we work at bringing about some moving of God, it, we, we cannot do it. It has to be the Lord. There is nothing in our flesh, in our ability. It's not going to be the wisdom of men. It's not, it's not brought about by bringing on some different program. Oh, if we just restructured our Sunday school program, if we just uh, adopted this new uh, outreach technique or whatever the case is, and I'm not against those things in and of themselves, but folks, those things will not produce the working of God in our midst. We need God to work. We need the Spirit of God here. I was praying last night and this morning and, and just telling the Lord and confessing to the Lord that that we're, we're going to gather together today. That's kind of a foregone conclusion. Uh, uh, barring this and, and that kind of thing, I knew that most of you would be here today. And I'm thankful to see your faces here. And, and I knew that we, we would be here. I'd be here and my, my family would. And, and, and there would be some of the things that we usually do. We were going to sing songs and we are going to take up an offering and we are going to have some prayer time and we are going to open the Bible and, and, and do all of these things. And, and we know all of that and those are all things that we can do but I was confessing to the Lord that just doing all of these things does not equate to Him meeting with us. We need, we need for, to hear from God. One of the biggest burdens on my heart as a pastor is, is knowing that from week to week, from Sunday to Sunday, and even Wednesday nights, that God's people, God's sheep, God's flock, they're going to gather together expecting to hear from God. And I've got this responsibility to try and lead in that. And yet, I, I, I want to just confess to you this morning, I have nothing to give you. If you're going to profit, if you're going to benefit, if you're going to grow, if you're going to become more Christ-like, if we're going to see God work, it's not going to happen because the preacher put together some great outline or did a very good job at delivering it. It has to be the moving of the Spirit of God. This is what I'm praying for, and this is something that I desire. I want to see an authentic, genuine moving of the Spirit of God in our midst. It's something I'm praying for and asking the Lord for. We're having what we call revival services starting a week from today. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to set time aside and come together in expectation and a desire for what we would call revival, for the Lord to work in our midst, and yet... There's this cloud that kind of hangs over it in my mind in knowing that revival is not something that can be scheduled. We don't just put together these meetings and put it on the calendar and say, okay, we're going to just do this and then God is going to work. Now when I say this, I also want to acknowledge that we're not just looking for some kind of this big, flashy, emotional uh, uh, happening, there is something to be said for faithful consistency. And I'm thankful for the promises of God that His Word will not return unto Him void. And I believe that when, when the Word of God is preached and declared that the Spirit of God is able to move and He works 
and, and does work in our lives. I'm thankful for the promise that Jesus gave. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. I'm thankful that every time we come together to meet with the Lord, He's always here. He's always with us. And I'm not trying to downplay that, but, but what I am saying is I, I want to see God doing things greater than what we have seen. And there, there's really a couple of aspects to that. One is God's part. What He's going to do. What He desires. What is His will? How, what is His timing? But then there's also our part. Are we ready to receive what God wants to do? And so this morning I want to look at Acts chapter 2. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you probably know this is an account of the events of the day of Pentecost. This was a feast that took place. It was, it was a, a, a feast that the Jews celebrated uh, 50 days after, uh, after the Passover. Uh, throughout their history, they had done this. This was something, one of the feasts that God had given to them to celebrate. And, and on this particular day, the young church at Jerusalem, only a few days, about 10 days after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, they experienced the empowering and filling of the Holy Spirit. For the first time, the Spirit descended upon His people. Now again, I want to just clarify that you and I, as children of God, have the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. You have every bit as much of the Holy Spirit today as you're ever going to have, and as much as you need. And that's all of Him. Okay, You're kept by the, the power of God. You're sealed by His Spirit under the day of redemption. Being filled with the Spirit to us today does not mean receiving more of God's Spirit. Actually, it has more to do with how much, not how much we have of Him, but how much He has of us. And being yielded and surrendered and submitted to Him so that He can work in us and through us as He wants to do. But here on this particular day, the disciples are gathered together... And the, 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 the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And the result of the events of this day as they begin to preach the word of God, speaking in other tongues, other languages to the people that were there so that they could hear and understand the gospel in their language. The result of the day is by the end of the day, 3,000 people, 3,000 people are born again. They've received Christ. And they get baptized and added to the church. And the church goes from 120 people to 3,120 people in a matter of one day. I would say that's a moving of God. And I want to just read about this with you a little bit. We don't have time to read through the whole chapter this morning, but I want to hit some highlights and look at some of the aspects of this event and this day, make some observations as we consider what does it look like when God moves. So let's begin reading here in verse number 1 of Acts 2. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. We're just going to stop there. Because I want to make note of some of the circumstances that were surrounding the moving of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. The first observation I want to make and, and point out to you is that there was a specific time. I want you to notice the timing of this. Notice it says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. I mean, that, that's how the chapter starts out. When, when the time was right. Have you ever stopped to consider that God doesn't always work on our timetable? He works on his own. And this particular day, God chose to work on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you that there have been times in my life where I've been frustrated because God doesn't seem to be doing what I want him to do or what I think he needs to do when I think it needs to happen. And as I said before, we can't schedule a great moving of the Spirit of God. God is going to work when He's going to work, and we simply have the responsibility to be ready for it when He wants to do that. It was when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Why, why would that be? Well, verse 5 tells us that there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. In other words, there were all of these Jews that had come together. They had uh, left different parts of the, the world, essentially, and traveled to Jerusalem to be part of probably both the feast of Passover and Pentecost. And so they, they took up a temporary dwelling there in Jerusalem, and it was at this time, at, at this time in history, right after the death and resurrection of Christ, that God said, I'm going to move and I'm going to work among my people, the Jews, and I have brought them together into one place, one city. Essentially, can we use the term for such a time as this? God knew that, that this was the time that that, that there would be a, a people that was prepared and ready for him. Uh, we read, for instance, in the New Testament of, of Christ being sent forth in the fullness of times, God sent forth his son. I mean, why didn't, why didn't God send Jesus to earth, you know, right after Israel came out of Egypt? Or at some time during the, the period of the judges or the period of the kings. Or, hey, better than this, what about after the Babylonian captivity as Israel was restored to their land? Why not then? Why were there 400 years between, uh, between the time that the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem and the Messiah coming? It, because there was a fullness of time. We don't always understand God's timing. We don't always understand why he works when he does or why there are times that it seems like he's waiting. But the reality is that God works when God wants to work. And this particular happening happened at a time when the day of Pentecost was fully come. In other words, when the time was right, God worked. Can I remind you that some of the greatest men of God, those that we look to as our heroes of the faith, often had to wait to see the fulfillment of God's promises and the working of God in their lives and ministries? You know, Joseph was a young man. He dreamed a dream that he would be a ruler and that even his own family would bow down to him, that he was going to be a, a ruler but it was over 20 years before he saw the fulfillment 
of that promise. And I'll tell you, that 20 years was not a peaceful journey for him. There were some rough times. Elijah is one of the, he's regarded as one of the greatest prophets to ever grace the face of the earth. You know how Elijah's ministry started? He went to the king. He rebuked him for this false altar that he set up. And then he fled and hid himself for three and a half years. Three and a half years, Elijah sat by a brook where he drank water and was fed by the ravens bringing him food. When the brook dried up, he was then sent to a widow in Zarephath who would feed him. For three and a half years, nothing happened. And then he goes back into Israel and, and uh, uh, has that big, kind of the climax of his ministry. One day on Mount Carmel, as, as, as he proves that Jehovah is God. And in one day, Baal worship is put out of Israel. One day it was put out, and that's about how long it lasted. Because the very next chapter tells us that he was on the run for his life from Jezebel. We, we think of the highlights. We think of the Mount Carmel moments. But what about all that time in between? How about Moses? Moses was raised up in Pharaoh's house at 40 years old. And the Bible tells us it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the, the, the children of Israel. And... So he goes and he kind of takes matters into his own hands and he kills one of the Egyptians. And what happens to him? Well, he's got to go and run for his life and he ends up in the wilderness leading a flock of sheep to the backside of the desert. Not just in the desert, the backside of the desert. I mean, he's out away from everyone and everything. Forty years leading a flock of sheep. They're not even his sheep. It was his father-in-law's flock. For 40 years in the wilderness till Exodus chapter 3 where God appears to him in the burning bush and he says, now it's time. I want you to go back into the land of Egypt and lead my people out. And by that time, Moses went from being this proud, arrogant, hey, I'm the, I'm the deliverer, I'm the anointed one, I'm God's appointed man, to saying, God, I can't do that. That ship has sailed. That was so long ago. That was another lifetime. Now who am I? I can't even speak right. Forty years. But the time came that God was ready to work. Now in each of those situations, each of those examples, I just want to tell you something. They couldn't see the hand of God at work. But in every one of them, God was at work. I want you to know that even as we wait to see results, to see what God wants to do and when the time is going to be. I want you to know God is working. God is at work, whether we can see his hand or not. God is moving, but I'm just saying there will come a time when God is ready to show forth his mighty hand and we need to be ready for it. I want to point out that timing, but I also want to point out to you that there was that the people were ready. Notice it says, at the end of verse number one, they were all with one accord in one place. 
Who is the they? Well, it tells us in the first chapter, verse number 13, when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. The end of verse number 15 says the number of the names together were about 120. This was the first church in Jerusalem. They were gathered together on this particular day, and it says that they were with one accord. The, the phrase one accord, it literally means to be of the same mind. We could say that their hearts were knit together for a common purpose. They had the same mindset. They had the same desire. We could say it this way. There was unity within the church. The people were together. There weren't a bunch of divisions among them. There wasn't infighting. There, there, there weren't people, one who was bitter against another. Brother so-and-so won't talk to brother so-and-so. Sister so-and-so is mad at sister so-and-so because of something she said or did. There, that wasn't going on. All the church was in one accord. We're told in the Scriptures that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We are not to quench the Spirit. And both of those times when that is mentioned, that we are not to grieve the Spirit of God and that we are not to quench the Spirit of God, it's in relation to our relationships with the brethren. Did you know that a divided church is a grief to God? Do you know what is represented in this place? This is the body of Christ. And if we are at odds with one another, if we've got problems with each other, well, I love our church family, but I won't talk to those people. If that stuff is going on, I'm telling you, it is of grief of heart to our Lord. And we cannot expect that God is going to work and that God is going to move if there is division. No, they were all with one accord. They were on the same page. They, they, they have the same heart. They have the same desire to see God working. They were all of one accord. How can that be? How could it be that we could all be of the same mind? We're different people. We've got in this room represented people from multiple different generations, probably about four generations of people represented right here. And those are some pretty distinct generations. Uh, some of you older folks here, you think a lot differently than some of our young people. We've got people that come from different parts of the country. I grew up in the north. Some people grew up in the south or the east or the west. We've got city people. We've got country people. We've got people that were raised in a Christian home. We've got people who were raised away from the word of God. We've got differences of opinions. We like different foods. We like different sports teams. We've got different political leanings. I'm just saying we're different. How can we be all of one accord? There's really only one way, and that is when we align ourselves with one thought. If we'll, if we'll get, all get on board with the word of God...
then we can all be of one mind. When we let God lead, when we let Christ be the head of the church, we can all be of one mind because we're not following one another and we're not following our own opinion. We're following one Savior. But God chose to work at a time where the church was in unity. They were together in one accord. And I love the, the phrase and the statement that is made in verse 1 of chapter 2, that they were all of one accord and in one place. They were assembled together. Now, I think you probably know, if you've read the New Testament, that the early church didn't meet once a week. They met every day. And, and I understand we've got busy schedules and lives and, 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 and we work and school and, and, and family and all these different things going on. And so sometimes it's hard for us just to find two days out of the week, Sunday and Wednesday, that we can get together. But I just want to say this. If we want to see God working and moving, we ought to determine in our hearts to be here. How would you have liked to be the one member of the church in Jerusalem that missed out on what God did on the day of Pentecost because you slept in that day. Or you had something else going on. You know, I, I know there's church going on today, but I've got this to do. I don't know about you. I, I don't think I would ever get over that. If I missed it, if I missed it, look what God did. 3,000 people saved and baptized. When I came back to church, my seat was taken by someone else. How would you like to miss it? But if you wouldn't have been there, you would have missed it. They were assembled. They were to, by the way, this is part of being in unity. There's a mutual commitment. We're in this thing together. Folks, and, and if I can say this, I, I don't want to be unkind to anyone here at all, but, but I'm speaking from, a, from a, 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 a place of love and a, and a heart of burden. In every church, there is, and you'll hear a lot of times people talk about this. Uh, you, you'll hear pastors talk about this. You'll hear missionaries talk about this. We'll, we'll refer to our core people. You know what, what we mean by that? That's not an insult to anyone. But, but what we mean by that is there, there, there is a, a certain group of people within a church that you can count on. They're there. They're committed. They're on board. They're all in. And it's not that anyone else is a lesser church member. Less important, less valuable, less loved. Not at all. But there are those who kind of sit out on the fringe. They're there. They're part of it. You love them. They're part of the body. That you, you, you want so much for them to get plugged in and engaged. But life is busy and obligations and they just never really connect. But folks, if we're going to be together, if we're, if we're going to be unified we not only need to be of one accord in mind, we need to be in one place. They were together in one place. By the way, what were they doing? Oh, they were eating. They were Baptists, right? They were eating. They 
broke bread together every day. No, 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 I want you to notice this with me. Go, if you would, to the book of Luke 24. Luke 24, Jesus has been crucified. He rose again. He's about to ascend into heaven. He gives a couple parting instructions. And notice it says in verse 46 of Luke 24, And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And what is the promise of the Father? What did John say? Do you remember what John said? He said, I indeed baptize thee with water, but there is one coming after me. He said, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That was the promise of the fire, that the, 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 of the Father, that the Spirit would come and descend upon them. He said, I want you, I'm going to send you the promise of the Father. But notice what he says in verse 49. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So we come to Acts chapter 1, back in Acts and chapter 1, they've, verse 12, they re, then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. Look at verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. So what were they doing? They were assembled together waiting for God to move and as part of that waiting, they were praying together. It wasn't like this church just decided, you know, we're just going to kind of hang out and we're just going to be kind of a, you know, we're, we're, we're going to eat together, we're going to fellowship, and we're going to play some games, and, and then one day, they just happened to be together, and whoo, God showed up, and man, they just, no, 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 they were expectant. They were looking for God to move. They were waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. They were praying together. They were asking God. They were no doubt pleading with the Lord. Lord, send us the Spirit that we may be empowered to do what you've called us to do. There was unity. We understand that it must be the Lord that does the work. I already made that very clear, but I want you to know that God often works when we are yielded, yielded to Him and seeking Him. I, I hope that you came to church this morning with a heart that said, Lord, I want to hear from you. I want to meet with you. I want to see you work. I hope that you're spending time between now and and next week as we prepare for these revival meetings coming up to say, Lord, please work among us, move among us. We're expecting it. God doesn't just show up willy-nilly when, when no man is looking for him. They were together in one accord. They had the same desire. They were waiting for God to work. Also, I want to just notice that the Word of God was emphasized. This is very important because there are those out there who have even taken the name of Pentecost and they, they, they put a lot of emphasis on this kind of false concept of a working of God. And it's all about a feeling and it's all about this un, uncontrollable 
uh, moving that's happening in their, in their physical bodies and, 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 and all of these strange things. And there's often a, a large emphasis on things such as music and things such as uh, 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 feelings and even physical infirmities and healing and all of those things. But I want you to know when God worked here on the day of Pentecost, you know what the focal point was? It wasn't speaking in tongues. The speaking in different tongues was just an avenue, it was just a tool so that people could hear the gospel in their own language. That's made very clear from the text. Uh, look at verse number 8, all these, or verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. In other words, the, the apostles didn't get up there and just start rambling a bunch of stuff and say, oh, I'm speaking in tongues. No, no, no. They were speaking in the languages of the people that were hearing them, and God was using this in order that those people could hear the word of God in their own language. Okay, so they're doing this, and what happens? Look at verse number 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, and from here... Until verse 36, Peter preaches unto them the Old Testament scriptures out of the prophets and out of the Psalms. He, 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 he preaches the gospel to them. Folks, I, I believe that if there is a genuine moving of the Spirit of God, it's going to be when the Word of God is emphasized. It's not going to be some emotional high that just kind of happens someday. It's going to be when, when the Word of God goes forth. Listen, it is God's... What did Jesus say? He said, it's the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Then He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus prayed to the Father and He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. And it was when the Word of God was preached that the people were brought under conviction. They were made aware of their situation and their need. Why? Because it's the Word of God that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. and It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It was the Word of God that worked in their life. Can I ask you, friend, when was the last time not that you were touched by some song. I love music. I'm thankful for how God uses music. I've been blessed by the singing of God's people, and, 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 and I'm encouraged by that. And, and the Lord often uses music to speak to our hearts. But I want to ask you, when was the last time that you were touched, that you were stirred, that you were moved, not by a song, not by a testimony, not by a story, but by the Word of God. That the Word of God was preached and God got a hold of your heart. That's where the lasting work of God comes from. I'm not saying God can't use these other things. He often does. But it's the Word of God that cuts to the soul. The word of God was emphasized. And by the way, notice they were listening for it. Verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, what did they hear? They heard the word of God. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Can I tell you, friend, it's entirely possible for you to listen, hear the word of God, but not to really hear it. 
How many times in the New Testament do you read that, that Jesus said something to the effect of, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And he even spoke of those who having ears cannot hear. And having eyes to see, they cannot see, they're blind. How often is it that the Lord was, is trying to speak to us, but we're so busy, we're so distracted by other things that we just can't hear Him? I know I'm not alone in this. There are times that we come into church and we're so consumed with all the other things going on in life and in the world that even if God was trying to speak to us, we wouldn't hear it. We're told to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We're told that thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Where's your mind today? Are you allowing the distraction of the world, the distraction of your life, the, the busyness of your life, what you have to do once you leave here, maybe the burdens that you, you're carrying, are you allowing things to cloud your vision to give you a deafness to the Word of God. They heard. These people were ready. and They were listening when they heard this. These are elements of God's moving. I want to very quickly show you the effects of God's moving. That when God was working, when it was the Spirit of God, first of all, there was conviction. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were brought under conviction. Notice they didn't just say, boy, Peter, that was a great sermon. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> no, that word pricked, it has the idea that they were, they were stabbed. I mean, it hurt. This wasn't a comfortable thing. There was something they realized. This is what God has said, and this is where I am, and I don't measure up, and that's not a comfortable thing. You know, it's not always a comfortable thing when someone tells us the truth. We don't always leave with a big smile on our face. Man, that was just great. It can hurt. Listen, when God is working, when God is speaking, there will be genuine conviction. Why? Because there's not one of us that measures up for all of sin and comes short of the glory of God. Listen, friend, I need God to show me where I fail. I need God to come into my life and lovingly put his arm around me and say, Brian, you're not, you're not where you need to be. I need to purge this out of your life. I need to work this into your life. Can I ask you, friend, when was the last time that there was genuine Holy Spirit conviction in your heart? Folks, I've talked to people who... I had a guy tell me, I had a guy leave church I was pastoring and I, I couldn't get it out of him what was wrong what's going on when I finally got him to admit why he decided he wasn't coming back this is what he said he said it's the preaching he said it just it's watered down it's tickling the ears and this is what he said. He said, I have not been under conviction in years. 
Now let me tell you something. I understand as a preacher, and I, I told you, I carry a burden. When I preach, I want to make sure you're hearing from God. I don't want you to hear from me. And I know that I don't measure up. And I know that my preaching is lacking oftentimes. But I think the word of God goes forth enough. That for someone to say, I haven't been under, the, I haven't been under conviction in years, that's not an indictment on God. But on a heart that has become hardened. Do you know what that actually is? That's evidence of the judgment of God. Did you know that God said to his people in Amos chapter 8 that because they had rejected his word, he said, the days come when I will send a famine in the land. He said, not a famine of food or, or of water, but he said, of hearing the words of the Lord. They're not going to hear it anymore. You think of, uh, of Saul, King Saul. Man, he had the prophet Samuel at his disposal. Anytime he could hear from God, all he had to do was call up Samuel and Samuel would speak to him. This is what God wants from you. And then guess what? Saul rejected the word of God over and over and over and over again. And Samuel died. And then when he had need for God, the Bible says that God answered him not. God quit speaking because he quit listening. Can I tell you, when God is working, there will be conviction. God will work. We had a couple, a, a, a family that started coming to our church when I was pastoring in Texas. And uh, it started off the, the daughter. She was a, a grown uh, young lady in her early 20s at the time. She started coming. She came for a couple of weeks. Pretty soon her mom was there with her. I got to know this family and... It's a really interesting story. Um, the father, the husband, had been a, a pastor, and they had quite a few kids. Most of them were grown at this point, and the older kids were raised in the ministry. And I don't know exactly what happened in their, in their lives, but they got out of the ministry, and eventually they got out of church, and their younger kids were raised almost like in the home of a lost person. Uh, this family had been broken. There had been separation. They were on the brink of divorce. There, there had been drugs and alcohol. There had been affairs. There had been all kinds of things. And, and by the time that they started coming to the church, uh, it was just like a, a totally broken, messed up, worldly home. And it was really sad to see how they had gone from being from where God had brought them from to where they were. Anyway, this mother and daughter started coming pretty soon. The father started coming as well, and God brought restoration in that family. The, the, the husband, the father, just recently passed away. But before he passed away, I'm telling you, God used that man for his glory. It was a tremendous testimony. It was just, it was powerful. The reason I bring them up is I remember preaching some messages that I will tell you right now, they were, they were really lame. They were lacking. And if you've, ever, if you've ever preached, it was one of those where you just, after you're done preaching, you want to crawl under a rock and die because it was just embarrassingly bad. And I remember Times where I would get done preaching, I could tell I had lost everyone there. They weren't even paying attention anymore. And yet we would come to invitation time, and this mother and this daughter would be down at the altar, and they're just broken and weeping and crying out to God. 
And the father would, would do the same thing when, when he started coming to church. I remember every service, he was at the altar crying before the Lord. And I remember after church having them come up to me and say, Pastor, thank you so much. We needed that so much. God spoke to us so much. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know how you got anything out of that because that was awful. You know how they got something out of it? They were hungry for it. They were, they were looking for something. They, they came with expectant hearts saying, God, I need you to do a work in my life. And if you're listening, God will work in your life. The Lord was working and there was conviction. Very quickly, there was also a response. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and sent unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Did you know that that is the only right response when God speaks to you? The, the only right response is, okay, Lord, what do I need to do? How do I respond? How can I obey? The question isn't, did I enjoy the message? The question isn't, was, it, was that good? Was it delivered in a good way? The question is, what did God tell me to do? And how do I respond? How do I take what's been given and apply it in my life? How do I carry this forward today and throughout the rest of the week? They responded, what shall we do? Peter responds to them, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as our Lord shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Do you know what that shows me? There was not only a response, there was immediate action. Now here's the thing. We understand. I hope, I hope you understand this. Baptism does not save you. If you were to come to me and say, hey, how, how, can I, how can I go to heaven? How can I be right with God? My answer would not be get in those waters and be baptized. Because baptism does nothing to save you. What saves you? Notice the first thing he said was repent. There, there, there's the, 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 the way of salvation is not through baptismal waters. The way of salvation is through repentance and faith. Re receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. Baptism is simply a step of obedience after salvation that says, Lord, I want to follow you and I want my life to testify that I, will, that I am now your child and that I will follow you. So why is baptism so closely connected with salvation in the New Testament? Because even though salvation is a work of God in the heart, if God is working, there needs to be an outward expression, an outward action. And when a person gets saved, when a person calls upon the name of the Lord, they need to testify of that. They, they, they need to respond to that. There needs to be obedience. By the way, if you're here this morning, you're a child of God. You, you're saved. I, I know I'm saved. I, I've called on the name of the Lord. I've repented of my sin. I've trusted Christ. I have been born again. You have a testimony of salvation, but you've never been baptized. You need to get baptized. It's obedience. Follow the Lord in baptism. 
Maybe you're here, though, and you say, well, I've been saved and I've been baptized. Okay, but when, you, when, when God speaks to you, when God works in your life, are you doing anything about it? Are you acting on that? Do you respond? And when I say respond, I don't just mean coming to the altar and praying. I hope you will. You ought to. If God's speaking to your heart, you ought to talk to him about that. Lord, you, I hear. I, I'm hearing. I hear what you're saying, and Lord, I want to ask you to help me with this. But the, the, the action takes place when you leave this building. There was conviction, there was response, there was immediate action. Very, very quickly this morning, I want to show you the evidence that this was a work of God. This was not just a flash in a pan. This was not just an emotional high. Look at verse number 42. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Look at verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Do you know what the evidence was that this was a work of God? It lasted. It was lasting. They continued. You know the thing that bothers me is how many times I know I've seen the Lord work and move. I remember going to youth camp as a kid and being stirred up and the Lord speaking to me about things and then I'd come home and within a week or two the decisions that I had made kind of went by the wayside. Just went back to living the way that I had lived before. Some revival meeting, some powerful preacher would get up and, and man, it just seemed like God was working. And I want you to notice that here there was a there was ongoing evidence of a change of God. Change that God made in their lives. They continued. They continued. Folks, if we want to see genuine revival, if we want to see a genuine moving of the Spirit of God, I want you to know it's not going to come in just some big emotional moving within a service. I'm all for that, and I want God to do that. But it's going to be evident when it's played out and five years from now, Things are different because God did a work. Man can manufacture temporary spiritual highs. But when it's a work, a moving of God, it's lasting. It's lasting.